Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. As Parliament begins tomorrow, new session, the Parliamentary Ethics Committee meets on Tuesday and uh, Justin Trudeau's $9,300 per night vacation lodgings donated by a friend is on the agenda. And Interim Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner Conrad von Finkenstein is going to testify. Now, Democracy Watch writes von Finkenstein as one of the worst enforcement records, and Democracy Watch adds he has buried eight ethics complaints, including about Prime Minister Trudeau, and gutted three creaky rules. Is he the lapdog Trudeau has been trying to get as ethics commissioner? Now, we've talked about this, and it's a very significant issue. The ethics commissioner's position is extremely significant in our parliamentary reality. And we don't want a lapdog, and we don't want an ethics commissioner who's appointed by the prime minister because parliamentary law requires the opposition parties to be engaged. Duff Conacher is the co-founder of Democracy Watch. He's a lawyer and author, and he joins us on The Roy Green Show. So, Duff, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, the ethics commissioner meets, uh, the, the committee rather, meets tomorrow, or Tuesday, about Trudeau's Jamaican vacation, and von Finkenstein, the interim ethics commissioner, will appear. In what capacity? Uh, he will be there to answer questions about uh, essentially what Trudeau or the prime minister's office told him about the trip to Jamaica, because there are uh, different versions, and the the Prime Minister's office admitted that initially they told the interim ethics commissioner that Trudeau would be paying for the trip, and then they corrected that after the National Post uh, reported, based on freelance reporter Glenn McGregor, uh, that uh, digging a bit and finding out that no, in fact, they were staying for free at uh, this family, uh, this resort owned by uh, family friends of the Trudeau family, and. Uh, then they changed the story again, said they were just staying at Friends, not at a resort. So uh, we need to know, and the ethics interim ethics commissioner should have already disclosed the communications between the PMO and the commissioner's office uh, in terms of uh, what he was told and when he was told it. Um, and hopefully they'll also grill him on the issue of how he was appointed, how he was handpicked in secret by the Trudeau cabinet. And also his enforcement record on on other issues, uh, as you mentioned, he's cleared away eight complaints that were sitting there for him when he was first appointed at the end of August. So let's get at that. So we have this interim ethics commissioner who's appointed by the prime minister, which is not the way it's supposed to happen, but it's the way it happened well, with... It is, it, it is for the interim position, and that's why it's so dangerous. This guy is on six-month contracts. And what does he know? Well, to get the contract renewed, you got to please the prime minister because the prime minister gets to choose an interim commissioner alone. But for appointing an ethics commissioner for seven-year term, he is supposed to consult with the opposition party leaders. And back in 2016, 2017... I was going to ask you, how much, how much consultation was done in 2016 when Mario Dion became the ethics commissioner. Yeah, 2017, actually, it was. Um, what he did with both the ethics commissioner and commissioner of lobbying positions, as you mentioned, very important 
watchdogs over key rules that really protect our democracy and ensure democratic good government. With both of those physicians, Trudeau sent one name to the opposition leaders, Mario Dion for ethics commissioner and uh, Nancy Boulanger for commissioner of lobbying, and said, we're appointing these people in seven days. Tell us your thoughts. I mean, it was dictation. It wasn't consultation. And uh, we went to court over that. And unfortunately, the courts rolled over and uh, allowed it. Um, they shouldn't have allowed it. It wasn't consultation. And the opposition parties have to push this time for real consultation. And they better start pushing now because Trudeau's already playing games by appointing an interim commissioner and pretending like there's no qualified candidates for ethics commissioner position. And it looks like he wants to install Conrad von Finkenstein and if he did, it would dangerously undermine federal ethics standards for the next seven years because this guy is a dedicated lapdog. Duff, tell us about the eight ethics complaints or the most significant of those eight ethics complaints the Democracy Watch says he well, he buried. Well, we only know about two of them because he's hiding the other six. Uh, but he did testify in September that he had eight outstanding. And then in October, he testified again before the ethics committee and and he said, I've cleared them away. Uh, there may be some others that have since October that he's cleared away as well. All we know is there's no findings of anyone uh, being found guilty on his website, which means that he let everyone off. We know there were 11 people involved. Um, two of the complaints were complaints that Democracy Watch filed. And so we received rulings from him. The first one was he said it's fine for Trudeau to have appointed his family friend, David Johnston, to investigate Trudeau uh, when he appointed him special rapporteur into foreign interference last spring. I mean, that's just ridiculous to say that it's fine for Trudeau. And not only did he say that, it's fine. he said he, it's fine for Trudeau to appoint anyone he wants to any government position because he has a royal prerogative to be able to do that. And that sets a precedent that says anyone in cabinet prime minister can appoint anybody they want, family, friends, to any government position. I mean, it's a very dangerous precedent. It's also wrong. He doesn't have that prerogative. He has to uh, comply with the Conflict of Interest Act. And he had a clear conflict of interest when appointing his family friend, David Johnston, to investigate him. Trudeau did. And so it's, it's just one. I, I suspect the other six complaints that are still secret are just as bad. The second one we received was... Uh, Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson used to do work as a consultant for tech industries. He's been lobbied by tech industries six times. His wife is invested in a couple of financial institutions that are major investors in tech industries. And he's not even going to look at whether Jonathan Wilkinson has been trying to further tech uh, limiteds uh, private interests in a key decision uh, in terms of whether there'll be an investigation of pollution by tech out in BC. And so that's just another instance where there's enough there to investigate. If you're turning it away, you won't even look at it and examine it closely. You're just, you're just essentially saying I'm a lapdog and I'll roll over on any situation and let the people off. And that's of course what Trudeau wants. He wants a lapdog there for the, through to the next election so that no liberal will be found guilty of violating the ethics rules again before the, the next federal election. Yeah. We can't have a lapdog in that position. We no. need a strong strict watchdog with teeth. Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, he's a lawyer and author, uh, is with us on the issue of the Parliamentary Ethics Commissioner, which is a great gig, eh, uh, Duff, 230 k a year? Yes, 
for seven years if you get appointed for a seven-year term, and you don't have to do much. You just roll over and roll over and roll over and so, uh, keep your job. So are you concerned? So the commissioner, von Finkenstein, interim commissioner, is going to be testifying at the Ethics Committee on Tuesday in Parliament. Do you have concerns that any of the political parties will perhaps be not so interested in pushing hard to make sure that he does his job or he doesn't get the permanent position? Or do you think any of the political parties will say, well, it could be to our benefit if we don't push the ethics commissioner too hard and he rolls over for everybody? Yeah, we don't know exactly, but there is a bit of question about what uh, Michael Barrett said in response to uh, us raising questions about this appointment process. He's the conservative, conservative critic. Yeah, conservative critic and MP on the Ethics Committee for the Conservatives. Last September, he said there's been no consultation on the Ethics Commissioner appointment by the Trudeau cabinet, even though the deadline for applying was last May 23rd. So here we are eight months later and still nothing from the cabinet. I mean, really, nobody qualified, applied? It doesn't take eight months to then go through the vetting process to, to appoint someone. So, Mr. Trudeau, you yeah, told us... a week us ago, Michael Barrett said, the appointment process is fine. The problem is it's the wrong party running it, and we just need a change in government. Now, that might have been just a throwaway line because the Conservatives are, of course, calling for a change in government. They want to win the next election. So we'll see on Tuesday whether he questions uh, Von Finkenstein very closely about his enforcement record and about the appointment process. Because right now it's in favor of the ruling party and it really shouldn't be. Yeah. You also wrote to me in an email that I read on the air a couple of weeks ago that MPs don't necessarily have to be truthful to the ethics commissioner under specific circumstances. Remind us what they are. Yeah. When you're disclosing your financial assets and liabilities to the ethics commissioner as an MP or cabinet minister or government official, you do have to tell the truth. As finance minister Bill Morneau learned, a former finance minister, when he neglected to mention that he owned a villa in the south of France on his assets list of assets. But when you're disclosing gifts like the trip to Jamaica, you don't have to tell the truth. You can seek advice from the commissioner without telling the commissioner the whole truth. And then you really shouldn't claim that the commissioner's cleared you like Trudeau has, because the commissioner can't clear anybody without doing a full investigation, knowing all the facts, knowing whether the person who gave you the gift has any dealings with the government, which would make the, the gift uh, uh, illegal because you can't accept gifts to be seen to influence you. So, uh, yeah, there's just so many questions about um, what this interim ethics commissioner has done on the job. And hopefully MPs will grill him on Tuesday about everything, not just about the uh, Jamaica trip, because there's a lot of questions and his term is up the end of this month. And he really shouldn't be appointed even for another six month term. Because he has not only issued eight rulings clearing everybody, mostly likely the, the rulings are about Trudeau cabinet ministers, but also he's, he's gutted three key rules. He has actually said, this is one of the biggest ones, he's actually said that it's fine for top government officials and staff, staff of cabinet ministers to own $60,000 in, in, of shares in businesses, even if they make decisions about those businesses and about laws that affect those businesses. I mean, that's the, one of the most serious conflicts of interest you could be in, a direct financial conflict where you could profit from your decisions. And he said, that's okay. <laughs> it's just incredible. It's, it's, it's alarming. 
top NATO military leaders in Europe are warning publicly that NATO nations must prepare for war with Russia. Norway's defense chief is saying Europe has three years to prepare for war with Putin's military. And Norway, of course, shares a rather lengthy border with Russia. The head of the British Army, Sir Patrick Saunders, this week said Britain should train a citizen army of 120,000 soldiers, well-prepared and equipped to fight the Russians. And Sweden's chief of defense has also warned of war with Russia. Christian Muller, a leading voice of the German Council for Foreign Affairs, has given a maximum timeline of six years before Europe is engaged in a war with Putin's Russia. We're going to speak about that with our next guest, Dr. Christian Leuprecht, who's a favorite contributor to this program, Queen's University and Royal Military College, fellow at the NATO College in Rome, national international security expert, and he warned on air with us just really weeks ago that this is the most dangerous time in the world that we've experienced in decades. But before we talk about the military matters that we're facing and the concerns about war, there's another story that we should all be aware of, and that is, and again, the Globe and Mail has reported uh, yesterday, the day before yesterday, the TD Bank faces a stiff penalty from FinTrack for faulty controls to prevent money laundering in Canada. Major issue, huge issue. Uh, Dr. Leiprecht's book, which he co-edited with Dr. Jamie Farrell, they were both on the air with us a few weeks ago. The book is titled Dirty Money, Financial Crime in Canada and is published by McGill Queen's University Press. So, Christian, let's start with the, the issue of dirty money and the news story that TD Bank is going to be facing some rather stiff penalties from FinTrack because of faulty controls to prevent money laundering in this country. How do we put this into context? Yeah, and that's the key connection. Those are the nodes to connect here that I think uh, elude most Canadians, is that when our financial institutions and the financial system in this country does not perform according to the rule of law in the way it has been set out in the rules and regulations that have been set out, that explains why we have everybody as documented in a recent report by the uh, uh, International Alliance Against uh, uh, Illicit Economies, why we have Mexican cartels, Chinese triads, Iranian-based illicit finance networks, uh, people looking to evade Russian sanctions, all here in Canada, colluding and cooperating with one another. Canada has become um, a hub for illicit goods and contraband. Uh, it serves as a hub for global illicit trade. Um, Canada produces and distributes illicit goods, it exports contraband, and it is a safe haven for money laundering for global criminal networks. The problem is that our own law enforcement intelligence agencies are really just focused on domestic and to a lesser extent regional aspects of crime. And so the, tr the, the sophistication of the transnational components of organized crime uh, and they're, the people who are colluding with organized crime is effectively evading them. And so this is why money laundering controls are so important and why TD eschewing them is so important because this is what creates the hospitable climate in this country for all these global bad actors 
to run their money through here and to set up shop in this country. And so we can pretend these are problems, migrant migration problems in Mexico and violence in Ukraine and uh, Hamas and Hezbollah and that this is a problem in the Middle East. But it turns out that Canada is actually instrumental to many of these organizations and the way they flow their illicit gains and hide their illicit gains from across the world. How did we become such an easy target or such a, uh, a welcoming target? Well, so look, it's a combination of uh, that the national security framework that we have is simply not uh, aligned or suited for the 21st century. You've heard me refer, refer to national security in this country as rather homeopathic. We just had the decision from the federal court recently on the Emergencies Act. This all fits the broader pattern of that our legislation, um, our security intelligence agencies, um, the way we regulate our banks, um, the way we set up our financial intelligence unit, uh, even the fact that uh, governments make all sorts of pronouncements about things that they intend to do to do better, but then in the end, very little ends up getting done or what actually gets uh, gets done is sort of too little too late. Um, it is, I think, a, a broadly sort of an ignorance, the extent to which uh, all the problems that we say run counter to our interests, and that is to say the political, economic, environmental, health, security externalities, all that this creates, that we are ultimately um, not just a part of the problem, but within the Western alliance, the evidence is increasing emerging that we are a very significant part of the problem and much more significant than the way other countries, for instance, are being exploited because of the many weaknesses within our financial law enforcement, intelligence, and national security structures. Christian, how does this affect the Canadian family dealing with inflation, dealing with high interest rates, dealing with trying to renegotiate a mortgage. Many Canadians will hear this and say, look, that's so way beyond what I will ever have to deal with as far as financial reality is concerned. That's for the billionaires and the billionaire lawbreakers, not for me. How does it affect the average Canadian? Well, I think we should all be concerned when Canadian companies and Canadian technology is uh, complicit, for instance, in terrorist acts and in enabling um, the some of the heinous activities that we see by uh, terrorist organizations around the world, uh, including Hezbollah and Hamas. We should all be concerned when we have ample evidence that Mexican cartels, uh, Chinese triads, and uh, Iranian-linked money launderers are systematically using properties and assets in the greater Toronto area and throughout this country to professionally launder their gains and that people are effectively not being prosecuted for these types of activities. That we should all be concerned that the fentanyl that is causing a public health crisis in this country is not being imported into this country, that the precursors for fentanyl are being brought into this country and that the fentanyl is being manufactured here and exported to other allied countries as reported in the report that I mentioned, in particular, for instance, to Australia, but to many other parts of the world. So this is where Canadians should ultimately be concerned about what they're seeing in their streets, what they're seeing in terms of their housing prices, and, uh, and, and, and the concerns that they should have about making sure that 
their own bank that they bank with. I mean, we now have several of the large banks that have been levied with fines, um, and uh, uh, and it looks like there are more of these fines to come. But we can see that the fines in Canada are puny. We're leveling fines of $7 million, $10 million. In the United States, TD is looking at a fine vast in excess of perhaps uh, of, of, of hundreds of millions of dollars, possibly more. In Australia, fines are being levered, levied two of the four large banks, one with over a billion dollars, the other with $700 million. I think a $10 million fine is not really a great deterrent for the decision makers and the board at TD to do better. Do they do this intentionally or is it just not just, but is it largely oversight? I can't imagine that it's oversight because the FinTrack rules are pretty, they're they're there for all the financial institutions to understand and follow. Well, we've traditionally had a very reactive system. So what we're seeing is within the very restrictive confines that Canadian legislation has created for these agencies, that they are now trying to be more proactive with the very limited tools that they have. And I do think that there is both a combination of that, look, these are companies and their objective is ultimately the bottom line. And so anytime you invest in money laundering controls, in security, those are areas that don't generate profit, whether it's in Canada or elsewhere for companies or for financial institutions. So they will do the minimum that they must. And if they're not being held to account, then that minimum is going to be relatively little. The other is, of course, that this has not been a major uh, concern or preoccupation in this country. Canadian banks have long said, you know, the bank, the fines are being levied against banks in Switzerland, against banks in the in the United States, against banks in Australia. It turns out that here, like we often do in Canada, the smug Canadian attitude that we have, we are so much better than the rest of the world. And it turns out that we are subject to the same exploitations by professional money launderers and transnational organized crime as everyone else in the world. We've just been turning a blind eye to it. Yeah, if you leave the vault door open, somebody's going to go in and help themselves. It's human nature, and if um, I mean, it's it sounds in a very fundamental way that that's exactly what's happening, Christian. On the issue, and and let me ask you to wear your military uh, analyst's hat here. So we have top European military leaders warning publicly that there's going to be war with Russia, and they'd better get prepared. Norway's defense chief saying Europe has three years to prepare for a war with Putin's Russia. They share a rather large border, a long border with Russia. That has implications for this country. The the Norwegian situation, the head of the British Army, saying Britain should train a citizen army of 120,000 soldiers and be prepared to fight the Russians. Sweden's chief of defense is warned of war with Russia. And in an email you sent to me, Christian Moller, a leading voice at the German Council of Foreign Affairs has given a maximum timeline of six years before a war with Russia, once war with Ukraine comes to an end. This is serious. Um, I hate to ask this because these are very credible people, but how credible is the threat? So here's the segue from our previous conversation to this conversation, that the illicit markets in Canada, of course, 
They impede the ability for the Canadian government to invest in economic growth in difficult economic times. Can't we don't have these illicit markets mean that this revenue is not here to invest in schools to protect families and so forth. But it also means it's not there to invest in the defense that is so critical in this dangerous security environment. And what we hear is our key European allies warning Canada. Uh, and their own populations, that the world is very likely to get tougher. And of course, the way we ultimately succeeded and built the prosperity in this country is by investing in deterrence to ensure stability in Europe and stability in North America. And of course, that worked like a charm after World War II with a relatively modest but important investment by Canada in European stability, We'll all remember the deployment of Canadian troops, for instance, to Germany during the Cold War. But one of the lesser known aspects of Canadian defense is that Canada has a role in shoring up Norway in case of war uh, in order to protect that particular flank. Because if you look at it geostrategically, that's a key flank because this is sort of where Russia needs to bring its northern fleet and its submarines through if they want to reach the Atlantic. So Norway is a particular target and has long been a particular target. We know this also from World War II, of course, the German invasion um, of Norway. And so the other chiefs of the defense staff, this is not accidental because they look at Norway, they look at the geostrategic location of their own countries in the United Kingdom with regards to Sweden, and they can see where Russia's war machine is going to go, regardless of the outcomes in Ukraine. That machine is going to keep going. And as German intelligence, for instance, reported just this week, it doesn't matter whether Putin, how long Putin stays in power or not, there are enough people around in his entourage who think like him who are going to keep this machine going. So taking out Putin, Putin dying, whatever, is not going to solve this problem. So this is a problem that will persist for the medium term. And of course, in Canada, rather than actually having a vision for how we can contribute to the stability of Europe, uh, we are actually actively pulling money out of national defense um, uh, and, and not making the investments that ultimately our allies are calling for. Yeah, well, the announcement was made by the Trudeau government that they're going to be pulling a billion dollars out of spending on, on Canada's military, which is already woefully under-equipped. Uh, do, do you believe, though, that Putin will, because he suffered tremendous losses in the war with Ukraine, uh, do you believe that he will be on a war footing with NATO nations, with NATO, with the West within a few years, within three years after the Ukraine war ends? So Canadian politicians have always been astute practitioners of the art of the possible. They know that investment in defense is quasi-dead money. It doesn't generate economic growth. It doesn't generate social well-being. And so they know that it's ultimately not popular. And so over the decades, Canadian politicians have perfected sort of spending as little as possible on defense. The problem is, of course, as I've argued repeatedly, and as many other people who observe this domain closely, is that the premium that we've been paying on this insurance policy is simply not enough. And that the lessons from the first half of the 20th century should teach us that spending even a slightly higher premium will get us much better returns than letting all of this get out of hand. And look, we can see that deterrence is not having the effect that we want. Look at the Houthis in the Middle East where deterrence has not worked. Look at uh, Putin when it comes to the invasion of Ukraine. Clearly, Putin was not deterred by the Western Alliance or the United States in terms of his invasion of Ukraine. And so now that he ke he's keeping going, 
if we drop, especially if we drop our support for Ukraine, then you can bet this will further embolden Putin to keep going. And the likely targets are either the Nordic countries or some of the Baltic countries, because they're the most difficult to defend in terms of their geostrategic locations. Uh, and they're the biggest prize for Putin ultimately in terms of, uh, of winning back in his sort of uh, dream of the Soviet reunion, uh, that uh, the nightmare that he's been creating for the Russian population and uh, for, for his neighborhood. And Canada can play an important role here. Um, countries such as Denmark, uh, Norway have reopened um, uh, uh, factories to manufacture ammunitions and ordnance to make sure that they can be appropriately equipped and prepared. What are we doing in this country to make sure we have sustainable investments that send a clear signal to Putin that marching over any territorial lines, let alone NATO territory, is simply not going to be worth his gambit? Seems surreal. Even though we've been following the war um, in Ukraine, and we've been speaking with the Ukrainian guests, it seems surreal that we should be thinking about a war footing in, uh, in the West in the, in the next couple of years. Christian, thank you so much. It's always great speaking with you. Thank you so much for the time. Yeah, there's a lot of work that we have to do in defending this country yep. and defending our allies. Hockey Canada situation has been on people's minds for, well, certainly the last year. There have been so many stories that had to do with the 2018 Team Canada Junior entry in the uh, World Championship. And the story began to surface and gather momentum about a number of Team Canada players allegedly having assaulted in a gang fashion, a young woman in a hotel room. The young woman is only known as EM. And today we find out, and we talked about this yesterday, we'll talk more about it now. Today we find out a, a lawyer has confirmed that former NHL player, Alex Formanton, who's facing charges in London, Ontario, has turned himself in to police. To London, please. This, again, has to do with that accusation made in 2018. Formanton is one of the five players. I'm just looking for the other names here. And, by the way, they've all been uh, granted indefinite leave from their pro clubs. Formanton, who used to play for the Senators, is currently playing in Switzerland. There's Carter Hart of the Philadelphia Flyers, Michael McLeod and Cal Foote, both with the New Jersey Devils and Dylan Dubé of the Calgary Flames. A London police spokesman did say all updates will be provided at a news conference on the 5th of February. So now we wait. But joining us is our friend Ari Goldkind, criminal lawyer, media commentator in Toronto. Um, Ari, what do you make of this case and its developments? I don't know if you're drawing conclusions. I'm sure you have questions. Just tell us what's on your mind, please. Sure. And before I answer that question, Roy, I'll give you my take on it, because it's a case I followed since the, you know what, hit the fan a year and a half ago as a result of her lawsuit and a massive payment to her that made her very wealthy of millions of dollars from Hockey Canada, which led to Parliament getting involved. So we'll come to that. But you gave an introduction of the ski young lady whose name I don't remember. You said Alison Forsyth. Uh, okay, good. So what I'm going to say is, 
Not a single thing that I'm about to talk about now has anything to do with Allison. I don't know her case. I appreciate the only connection is sports. I've defended some very, very bad people charged with some very bad sexual crimes. I'm not mingling any of that into my answer now. This is pure politics, what we're seeing with Hockey Canada. It is purely political. And as a criminal defense lawyer, I go back to the 2018 allegation. And here's what a lot of people don't know. Back in 2018 through 2019, the London Police Service and a dedicated team of sexual assault investigators in an environment post-Gomeshi, Roy, where as a result of a big Globe and Mail article called Unfounded, where certain people before woke became a thing, were offended that the police would use their discretion and not charge every single person accused of a sexual crime. They'd look at reasonable prospect of conviction. They'd look for corroboration. They would talk to other witnesses. They would look at that wit- the history between the man and woman. They would look at whether there's family court or divorce or child custody proceedings, and they would make a judgment call. As a result of the Globe and Mail piece that ended, and now I can accuse Roy Green of sexually assaulting me right now, even though we're on the air and not in the studio together, and Roy Green is getting charged. Now, I'm not kidding. So why do I say that's an important background? The police in London in 2019, whether or not she cooperated fully, decided, no, we don't even have reasonable grounds to lay a charge here. Case finished, everything done, not in the news. Um, About a year and a half ago, Roy, we're now in 2024, about a year and a half ago, It comes to light that she had sued Hockey Canada for millions and millions of dollars. This is after the police said, nope, nothing to see here. And she was written a very big check. As you know, Roy, because you covered it and you and I talked about it, this led to a massive hullabaloo on Parliament, where Parliament basically called Hockey Canada in. And because Parliament is often stupid, said, well, wait a minute, how can you write checks like this where anybody with a brain knows that the NBA, the NHL, Major League Baseball, you name it, they all have funds for just this sort of thing, not because somebody's guilty or not guilty, but because there's often very good reasons to come to a settlement. That's going to be a different question. You can ask me about that or not. So now the London police chief, Roy, and this is, again, for people to understand the full story, he takes massive heat, and he comes out and gives a press conference that says, Well, and he doesn't exactly admit it, but he goes, we're going to take some new investigative avenues. We've got some new things to pursue, some new leads. And so just leave it with me and uh, let's see what happens. Now you and I are talking, Roy. These five men are being charged, which takes me right back to the hotel room where this consensual act, as it starts on her version, she has consensual relations with one of the men and then others uh, join in. A lot of this is captured on video. You'll recall that from the news. And it goes back to the question, do I think there will be proof beyond a reasonable doubt in this matter? And I can tell you, Roy, maybe there will be, maybe there won't be, but it will be a very, very tough uh, job for a prosecutor to uh, achieve absent some videos. And I'll end my answer here, Roy, absent some videos that we have not being told about yet. So one of the questions I asked yesterday, and I'll ask you as well, once a financial settlement is agreed to, 
in a situation such as this. Does a police investigation naturally continue if sexual assault charges were pending? Or does the police investigation, once a settlement has been agreed to, does the police investigation usually go away? So that's a great question. The answer is very simple. If the case is not closed and somebody is also pursuing a financial settlement money, leaving aside that that's a dream scenario for a defense lawyer like me, you can imagine how I can use that in a courtroom, the police will not reopen a case even if there's a settlement or a civil lawsuit. And in fact, we know in the U.S. that happens more times than not. Look at Vince McMahon as a perfectly good example. Look at Donald Trump and that absolutely insane $83 million uh, decision the other day. If the police investigation is not closed, Roy, that means it stays open, the cold case, and they hope that somebody will come in and talk to them. Maybe some material develops, maybe a phone, a cell phone, which by the way, right now, cell phones contain massive amounts of evidence of a whole series of things. Most of your listeners don't realize that every step and move they make on their fo- uh, in their life is captured on their phone. So the police, if the case is not closed, I don't think they care one way or the other if there was a, a check written. But this is a case, Roy, which is why the important point is London police fully closed their file and only reopened it when the pressure coming from Ottawa was too great to ignore. Doesn't mean that these men are innocent. Doesn't mean they're guilty. Doesn't mean she's telling the truth. Doesn't mean she's lying. But it's a significant, significant factor that will play out for these five men's defense team in a criminal court, I can assure you. Uh, this will be a significant factor. Ari Goldkind, Toronto criminal lawyer, media. I don't like calling you a pundit because you're much more than a pundit. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're, you, you always provide me with a perspective that I didn't quite expect, but it's, it's all, if I were a lawyer, I'd have to be on my toes in the courtroom with you. But that's important because, Ari, I've talked to women who were victims of sexual assault. I have no doubt that they were victims of sexual assault. They brought to, or went to the police. Eventually charges were brought. They went to court. They said it was a horrific experience. And based on what they experienced in court, their wish was they had never reported it because the reporting and what they dealt with in court was, I don't want to say it was worse. I can't remember the exact words that they used, but it was something like that. It wasn't worth what I went through. So, so me, talk, speak to, could you speak to that and then speak yeah. to us, please, what's going to happen next with EM's case? Sure, but you just asked me a very important question that I get asked from time to time, but only by people who have the stones to ask me. So you've asked me, so let's get into that. Sure. First of, first of all, let's back up a second. I'm a defense lawyer, and I have seen for 20-some years women who have been very badly sexually assaulted, brutalized, raped, a word that was stripped from our criminal code that should be put back in tomorrow. I think it's asinine that we equate a bum grab with a full-blown rape in our criminal code. We do. It's all called sexual assault. When you call everything ketchup or you put ketchup on everything, you do absolutely nothing. I can come up with a more clever way of saying it, but I think people understand what I mean. So why do I preface my answer with that, Roy? Because what we're seeing in this culture now in the last five to ten years E. Jean Carroll, the Trump accuser, uh, the Vince McMahon accuser, all of these other cases where rational people, even people on the left, 
all say there's something wrong here. There's something fishy. This is a shakedown. This is a cash grab. The idea that E. Jean Carroll, only because a guy runs for president, gets $83 million, which I don't think she'll ever get a dollar, is such an insult to the thousands of women in this country and our friends to the South that are raped, that never get a dollar, whose names are not known, whose cases are disappeared because they're not famous. I find them completely insulting, and I use a lot of the Weinstein accusers in that bunch. I don't care if it makes me unpopular or people don't like it. That's my view. It insults women who have truly been victimized, assaulted, and raped by the worst of men in the clearest of circumstances. Now let me go directly to your question. I am not a woman. This can be called mansplaining. I'm not lost on people's gut reaction. But the idea that we should have a world or a country that looks like Saudi Arabia or Somalia or Yemen, where all it takes is an accusation by somebody when there's no video, no proof, no corroboration, no DNA, no little blue dress from the White House. People can figure out what I mean by that if you're my age. That all that should happen is an allegation happens, and then everybody should convict a man who says, I didn't do it. That's insane to me, Roy. And why do I push back on somebody saying, what happened to me in the court was as bad as the actual rape? I'm sorry. Maybe that was the case 20, 30, 50 years ago before I got into criminal law. But I can tell you, anybody saying that now, I would debate till the cows come home that if you think it's as bad to go into a courtroom and be cross-examined by me with a judge protecting you, with a crown attorney protecting you, with the Trudeau and criminal code protecting you by even saying to me, hey, Ari, you can't even ask her these questions that make her look like a liar. You can't even put cell phone records to her that show she's doing this to shake somebody down for money. When the entire system now has bent over backwards to treat accusers with dignity, to almost believe them without a verdict, where accused men who say, I didn't do it, or it's a date that maybe went wrong, but I certainly didn't cross a line, or she's mad at me now because I got caught cheating. And again, I'm being somewhat hyperbolic here, but the idea that I'm supposed to sit here for brownie points and say being cross-examined by a lawyer for three, four, five hours, just to make sure we don't put innocent people behind bars, just to make sure we test the evidence, for that to now be equated to the actual sexual assault in a bad alley, in a hotel room, in your own home, in the sanctity of your own bedroom. I don't care what people think of what I'm saying, Roy. I find that completely offensive in a world that should not look like Saudi Arabia or Yemen or where we stone people just because they accuse something. We treat accusers in this country. We don't have enough time in your segment where I can go through post-Gomeshi where those women were shown to be massive, massive, not truth-tellers. I'm putting that gently where everything in the system I work, work in was changed specifically so that those kinds of horrible experience you mentioned wouldn't happen. So I push back on it. I'm passionate about it because I also think it's very, very insulting to the thousands of women who have been brutalized by the worst of men to call everything the same thing. They're not. There are degrees, and sometimes when a man says he didn't do it, sometimes the man didn't actually do it, Roy, and that can only be tested by cross-examination of his accuser. We're going to talk again 
Ari, you're in the courtroom. I'm not. I just heard what women have told me. But and let's I, let's talk. Let's talk again. It deserves some pushback. Let's let's talk again, and we will, Absolutely. because this Absolutely. case is going to go forward, and there'll be opportunity and need for us to do that. Thanks for the time today. Short notice. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Anytime. So this morning, I called the former premier of British Columbia and former federal health minister, liberal federal health minister, Premier Ujjal Dessange, and I asked the premier if he would come on the air with us and speak about the issues in this country. There is the possibility, it's not likely, we're told, I, I'm not so sure about that, there is the possibility that we'll have a federal election toward the end of 2024. And what will the issues be? Will the issues be phony issues the political parties raised during election campaigns that are dutifully uh, regurgitated by some media, even though the story has nothing to do, which is front and center in the country, they just find a, a topic, the parties do, that they think is convenient to them, and then they toss out a news release to media, and media just dutifully report it as news. It's not. It's spin. You should never report spin as news, because it isn't. And all the parties do it. In this country, because we're center-left, the center-left party's spin is reported more regularly than is the center and center-right political reality. But what are the issues, and what matters to Canadians, and how do political parties approach an election? We're going to have one either this year or early next year. We have the former Premier of British Columbia, former Health Minister for Canada, Ujjal Dossange, with us. One of my favorite guests, as you know. Um, Mr. Premier, I've said to you before, the only threat that I can direct your way is if you ever decide to run again, I'll fly to BC and campaign on your behalf. <laughs> Impossible. <laughs> what, that I'd fly to BC? Uh, no, no, impossible that I'd run. Well, you should. No, you should fly to BC anyway. It's a nice place. It is a nice place. You should run. Uh, I, it's, it's a different time. I, I look at the debates and and I find that the uh, actors are a lot angrier than politicians used to be in the past. They're more polarizing <clears throat> and they're more accusatory rather than debating the issues. So I find all of that rather nauseating. Do you find, as you observe, and you had an extensive and active political life, successful, do you find when you watch and you listen that the political leaders and their deputies represent the interests of the party and not so much the interests of the people in the country? Um, there is very little thoughtful debate, and only if only thoughtful debates uh, can go to the issues of the country. Um, and I'm finding that uh, more and more people are um, accusing each other of things that perhaps others haven't done or they don't stand for. And um, it, it's a bit of a phony debate. I know people are angry, um, and people are angry because they're suffering. Um, rather than talking about those issues, um, in real time and, and in real terms, I find that, um, you know, the current government uh, wants to paint the opposition as mega 
and um, and um, the opposition is doing its job of uh, criticizing the government as best as it could. Even Mr. Trudeau admitted that somehow Mr. Paulia have found uh, sort of the nerve um, of people's concerns and uh, and has has been able to um, tap into it. So if he genuinely believes that. Um, then I think that there, he should engage in real debates rather than um, accusing each other of being either MAGA or something else. So you brought up Mr. Trudeau. He's crashing in the polls. Uh, his record is being questioned. His actions like invoking the Emergencies Act only to be rebuked by a federal court and uh, the deputy prime minister immediately challenging the court decision, saying, I'm paraphrasing, we, we value the opinion of the court and, and the independence of the court, but however, we disagree with the court. It doesn't matter whether you agree or disagree. We went to the court. The court had made its decision. Now go to the Supreme Court of Canada and, and stop, you know, stop with the accusations deftly directed toward the court. Oh, that's that's me. That's me, the talk show host, talking. But then, then, Premier, we have the carbon tax, and it's being manipulated. Uh, I I really believe by Mr. Trudeau, um, and I'm not a big fan of his, which everybody who listens to this program knows. He's never come on this program, and I truly believe if he ever did, and we gave him three hours, we'd never get past the first question. But what is? Let me ask you for your assessment. You were a liberal cabinet minister in a different time, in a different government with a different set of political values or approach. What is your sense of the job of Mr. Trudeau's done? Then I'll ask you about Mr. Polyev. Well, I, I find that, uh, that um, Mr. Trudeau talks in, <coughs> excuse me, talks in language that's, that's dated that, <coughs> excuse me, doesn't, doesn't relate to the concerns of the people, and um, and and he's sort of mired in the in the past of um, you know identity politics and and things of that nature, and he's never been able to get out of it. And um, you know, I of course served with him as an MP for two or three years when he was uh, when we were in opposition, and I find that he can do better, but but he is regurgitating the same old the same old. Um, you know, even even on one of the files that concerns me, that what we're doing in terms of um, our immigration is we're bringing the, the the problems of the world into Canada, and 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 we have battles on the streets in Canada, uh, marches and counter marches, and sometimes violent because the politicians, Mr. Trudeau in particular, hasn't been able to say to people when you come to Canada, change. We expect you to integrate. Um, and and that's really a problem. So I, I'm I'm finding that um, that that he's not grappling with the issues, whether it's the economy, whether it's immigration, whether it's housing. Um, there is more um, verbiage coming out than real solutions. Mm-hmm. No, I, I I fundamentally agree with everything you just said about the man. And I know after 10 years, it's difficult, no matter who you are, it's difficult to maintain your popularity among the electorate. It doesn't matter where, who you are or where you're, uh, you're running for, for, for office. We'll go talk, talk federal now. 
Because I do think there's a good chance of us having a federal election before the end of this year. Certainly do have to have one within six, 16 months, right? Yeah, 16 months. Premier, you said that uh, the um, political parties and the leaders, I, I think, if I can interpret what you said, are prone to drama, theatrics. But we also have a polarized population and a polarized population because people, are, as you said, are hurting. We know people are hurting. So it's advantageous for a political party to step into the, into the void and say, we will do away with the pain, i.e. we'll ban the carbon tax. So what is your sense then of the performance by Mr. Polyev and the Conservative Party? I think um, Pierre Polyev has tapped into um, the angst people are feeling all over the country. Um, um, the cost of living, whether it's housing or food or anything else, um, it's all gone up. And, um, you know, many people are having difficulty making both ends meet and he's tapped into it. And I've been I've been watching, you know, I, I watch the news, I read the news. Um, but, you know, I, I um, didn't know Pierre Paul, but I've known often because he was in the House when I was in government, he'd just been elected as well when I was elected in 2004. Um, and uh, he has grown, but there's still, um, he comes across as, as an angry man. Um, and, and that's, I mean, part of it is being in opposition. You have to criticize. Um, but, but he needs to come across as little less angry. He's obviously tapped into people's anger. Uh, as you mentioned on your program, that there are wasps vast swaths of people that are prepared to vote for somebody like Trump in this country. Um, and and that's a problem. Um, it's a problem for America. It could be a problem for us, too. Therefore, uh, you know, sort of we've always in Canada, as we found the middle ground. I, I can confess to you that when um, when Stephen Harper uh, became the prime minister, I worried that he'll go farther to the right. But he found a sweet spot. And, uh, you know, Canada wasn't that badly off when he was the prime minister. So I've become somewhat of a nonpartisan in, in my later life. And uh, and I think Pierre Polyev is, uh, has found the groove, and but he needs to be less angry. And, uh, and Mr. Trudeau needs to be more constructive, needs to have more plans than just the, um, you know, the kind of verbiage that he's been using in the past. It's not going to work. He, if he, if he's going into the next election to lead the Liberals, and and uh, and possibly beat Pierre Polyev, then he has to find a new act. Yeah, I'm just going to give you my my thought on Mr. Trudeau. It's over. It's over. The the problem for the Liberals is they don't have anybody else. There's nobody behind Trudeau to take his place. And I don't think um, the former governor of the Bank of Canada is the answer. And and I've forgotten his last name. I mean, I talk about him all the time. Carney. Yeah, Mark Carney. I don't think he's the answer. But let me, let me ask you this question. We have about a minute and a half. Is there a more foolish federal leader than Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the New Democrats, who continues to keep that deal in place with a, with, a, with a descending Trudeau, doesn't Mr. Singh, or maybe I'm wrong about this, wouldn't you say that Mr. Singh, we have 30 seconds, is, is foolish to stay in that deal? 
Well, I, I agree with you. I, I think that, that he's going to be, um, he's going to be sort of meat in the sandwich. He's going to be squeezed in the next election. Um, and, uh, and he really has um, little credibility when he uh, keeps the liberals in power uh, while continuing to, uh, you know, criticize them. If, if you're in bed with somebody, uh, it's really unseemly to be critical of them. Um, so uh, either have a divorce or get on with it. Get on with what? Sorry. I, I couldn't resist that. Um, do you believe, Premier, I shouldn't say some things that I say. It's the medication. Do you, do you believe that there will be a federal election in, in 2024? I don't believe so. I don't believe uh, Mr. Trudeau is ready. He knows that he will lose the election if it goes in in the next three or four months. Um, either they need a leadership campaign or uh, Mr. Trudeau needs a new act. And uh, it seems to me that it's going to be rather difficult to find that new act. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.